The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Great, Father. Great yeah, to be here. Good to see you. Yes, yes. Well, Father, uh, we had lots of emails to get into tonight, but I know first you wanted to ask for some prayers before we, before we begin. Yes, I ask people to continue praying for uh, Mrs. Yvonne Kramer. Mrs. Kramer is again in the last uh, days of her earthly life, um, according to the doctors. So I ask you to please keep her in your prayers. And uh, also, uh, young Therese Condit. Therese is uh, still uh, fighting for her life after having gotten the, uh, well, gotten stuck you know, with the two two doses. So uh, we pray for her and her family. And also a young child, newborn baby, uh, little uh, Jane Elise. Please pray for her. She will have to undergo a series of surgeries to you know, preserve her life and hopefully give her a, a, a good, normal life, we pray. And also for the entire Saint Laurent family, they've been ill lately. So please keep them in your prayers. And there are a host of others too, uh, who might not want to be mentioned by name in the program, but God knows who they are, and if you're charity, you can pray for them, and God will bless you for your charity and praying for them. And they will also, no doubt, be offering some of their, uh, some of their crosses for you as well. So uh, you know that each month I offer Mass for the intentions of all of our supporters, <clears throat> not only those who are still alive in this mortal moment of earthly life, but past supporters too, uh, who passed on, uh, I still remember their intentions. I still remember that in the Mass uh, that I offer each month. And so it is with you, and I appreciate your support and help. God bless you for that. That's great, Father. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, well, if we could get into some emails. We had um, several uh, questions about Francis in particular mm. uh, that I wanted to read to you tonight, Father. Uh, the first one. The, I'm sorry, Tom. Yes. Were these questions generated by this latest uh, motu proprio attacking the uh, Latin Mass, as it's called, or were they? Did they predate that? They predated it, Father. Oh, did they? Okay, yes. so people were already yes. sending in questions about that. Okay. Yes, yes. It's not a not a strange topic to our show, Father. Mm -hmm. Right. Sorry. Um, sorry. But this uh, this first viewer says that she listened to a sermon online from a priest and the. The priest talked about the need to pray for Francis and uh, stop the attacks on him. Um, she uh, said that this priest also said that God chooses a pope with a, quote, character that is appropriate for times they hold office. So, Father Jenkins, do you think it's possible that Francis is just trying to wake people up? Uh, I find it astounding that he is like a shock jock pope. Uh, he does things that are unquestionably non-Catholic. Um, she says that uh, I don't know how people are deceived and it is so blatant. I know God is in control and his permissive will is allowing this, 
but how much easier could he make it? She asked Father, am I missing something? Well, um, I'm not sure what even that last question means. Um, I'm a little puzzled, actually, by uh, what she says there. That, well, she says that she's heard that, that God sends a pope who is uh, suitable for the times or, or whatever. Is that right? Um, and then she calls Francis the shock jock pope, which is interesting. Um, so are we actually indicating then that uh, God has chosen to send a shock jock pope <laughs> to the church at this time? And uh, I just certainly don't see the designed will of God, as she mentions it. Uh, resigned will that God allows this to happen. Um, but that doesn't mean that God sent him. I mean, the fact that God's, we have uh, a distinction between God's, what God really wills to happen as, as the good, or what God permits and tolerates as the evil. So it's hard to see God sending a shock job poke to the church. And in that sense, um, positively willing this evil upon the church, I, I can't imagine that being the case. Um, nonetheless, I mean, uh, there is truth to what she says in that um, uh, you might say that Catholics have earned for themselves a man like this. I mean, God does punish us, um, you know, in the old days, uh, and when I say the old days, I mean the Old Testament, there would be no prophet in the land as a punishment to the people for their infidelity. I mean, when they were killing the, the true prophets or disregarding them, then, of course, they would earn a certain retribution from heaven, certain punishment that God would withdraw the prophets from them to guide them, right? And that would be a great punishment to them. And so when the church has some very heroic supreme pontiffs, heroic by the grace of God, notably St. Pius X uh, at, the, at the head of them all <clears throat> in modern times, and um, then, you know, they rejected him. Because after St. Pius X died, there was a rejection of him and what he stood for. Uh, his Secretary of State, Cardinal Mary Naval, was basically sidelined. And it was thought that he was just too tough on the modernists and too rigid and, and so on and so forth. So there was a kind of rejection of him in favor of a more quote-unquote quote moderate uh, stance toward modernism. Um, and so, yeah, the, I mean, there, there is a punishment from God for mankind rejecting God's graces. And uh, those whom God sends to be the instrument of grace... Um, so there's no doubt about it that uh, um, the the existence of Francis right now, where he is and uh, um, what he's doing, uh, has been brought on by our infidelity and our sinfulness. Our Lady made it very clear at Fatima, and so uh, we have to, you know, realize that uh, the the cause of these things. And why these things are happening, notably why Francis has happened. Uh, and it's a, an absolute disaster, a travesty, a scandal um, uh, to all the world, Francis, right? Uh, when I say that, I mean, 
And there are those who are horrified at what he says and does. And yes, they're scandalized. But strictly speaking, the ones who are really scandalized are the ones who believe him and follow him. Because he's the one, uh, he is the one who's scandalizing them in that that he's leading them away from the church and from God, from Christ. So uh, that's the worst form of scandal. Not that they're um, horrified at the sight of sin, but that they are enticed by it. And they're willing to follow Francis's infidelity. As the Masons said in the early 1800s, they would conjure up a, uh, a Pope who would march forward, uh, you know, in pontifical vestments that the Catholic people thought, think they would be following. Um, the successor of Peter, when they're actually following the um, agent of the Freemasons, right? And humanism and uh, so on. So that's what we have happening here today. But it is the result of our sin. And what we need to do, I think it was as a very ably pointed out as a gentleman at our men's club, our men's meeting, the Vexilla Regis meeting, Catholic Men for Christ the King, is that what is absolutely necessary is, is penance. And uh, we have to uh, actually um, do penance for these sins. We have to, have to also offer God our, uh, our, um, uh, retribution or our, uh, you know, uh, especially for, as, as it was said yesterday, for our blasphemies against God and uh, our, um, and our profanation of Sundays, right? And not keeping Sunday holy. Um, you, you heard that last night from a very fine Catholic gentleman, right, who presented that. And so we have to uh, do penance for these things. I think it was uh, you who actually referenced also the golden arrow of Sister Mary St. Peter, right? Yes, that's right. And uh, the private apparition she received in the 1800s, <clears throat> in which it was said that uh, the rise of communism, uh, this, the scourge of communism, which would affect us very much today because of the rise of Marxism and communism in our United States today, would be the result would be ways God's way of punishing us for failing to keep holy the Lord's day and for uh, sins of blasphemy. And so we have to, uh, you know, do penance for that um, so that God would actually raise, you know, allow the communists to gain power uh, as a scourge of God for our sinfulness. So I believe it is true of Francis too, that the church uh, has to be beset by this uh, very dubious individual, you know, who, uh, let's face it, he does not profess the Catholic faith, right? He's leading many, many astray. Right. I don't know if that answers the question, but so. I think it somewhat, at least obliquely, obliquely uh, addresses it somewhat. Yeah. Okay, uh, then another related question regarding Francis. Um, this viewer says, uh, since Francis has offered worship to foreign idols, uh, has he excommunicated himself? And is he even someone with authority? Uh, is he above the civil government of the Vatican City State? Uh, they ask, do Catholics or even any Christian owe him any more than the respect due to all human beings? Well, well excommunication is a censure and um it is a legal censure okay 
And it can either be automatic or it can be by decree. And he certainly hasn't decreed himself and nobody else has decreed him excommunicate. So the only way Francis could have excommunicated himself is uh, if he did so automatically. And there are certain grounds for automatic excommunication, right? <clears throat> One of them, the uh, willful profanation of the Blessed Sacrament. Right? There are others too. Has Francis, uh, you know, been inflicted upon himself excommunication in this way? Um, uh, I don't know. I think you'd have a time, hard time arguing, arguing that case from the law of the church. Um, has he defected from the faith? Certainly. Um, has he publicly taught things that are contrary to the Catholic faith? Yes. Uh, has he taught things that are impious, uh, offensive to pious ears, blasphemous, and so on? Yes, yes, he certainly has. I mean, he has said quite a number of things that are absolutely contrary to sacred scripture and to divine revelation uh, through the church itself, uh, even against divine Catholic faith, defined Catholic faith. But he says that uh, atheists can be saved without faith. It's not necessary to have even the virtue of faith to be saved. <clears throat> I mean, this is something that is totally contrary to divine revelation. And St. Paul says, without faith it is impossible to please God, right? And my just man lives by faith, right? But of course, without justice, one cannot be saved. So, um, you know, things like that are very straightforward statements that are contrary to the faith that Francis has made, and he's never retracted. Right. right? So... Um, to that extent, I mean, I think there's no doubt that he's defected from the faith. Uh, but, you know, that's the question is whether, whether he had, ever had it in the first place. And um, if he never had the faith to begin with, then could he be validly elected a pope, a true pope? You know, there, there, if he didn't even believe in the, in the papacy, as Catholics do, he doesn't believe in the Catholic concept of the very office of the papacy. Could he be elected to an office? Could he even accept the office in the first place if he didn't even believe in it. And uh, we can tell from what he has said and done that he, uh, he had no concept of what the, the office uh, of, the, of the Pope is <laughs> in, the, in the Catholic sense. He had a very false idea and still does. Uh, his whole idea of going from the conciliar church to the synodal church now uh, has made it very clear he has no concept of, of even the structure of the Catholic Church itself. So, um, I would say, has he excommunicated himself? Well, yes, in the sense that he's actually gone beyond that and has publicly de de defected from the faith. Mm -hmm. So what kind of respect is, is, is due to him? Well, I mean, for those who see that he's defected from the faith, they would see him as an individual who is in need of their prayers and is... Uh, a public center in need of uh, in need of repentance and conversion. Right? We have to pray for him. But uh, the very least, as as the Society of Saint Pius V says, the very least we can say, and this is the the very least we can say, 
is that there is an objective doubt about the legitimacy of his papacy. I mean, without presuming magisterial authority to just come out and announce, look, he's not the Pope, and you can't believe he's the Pope. Um, you know, one can, we, we do agree that there's an objective doubt about his papacy because of the things he's done and said, and there's a legitimate question, traditionally, whether a Pope can do things like this, whether a Pope can say things like this and still be the Pope. It's a question that has been raised in the, in the course of the church's history multiple times. And it's been answered multiple times by very competent, undoubtedly Catholic men of great standing, great learning, um, and uh, who have official positions in the church, <laughs> who have uh, many of them canonized as saints in heaven and called doctors of the church here. And they've addressed this very question. And their answer was, yes, a pope can defect from the faith, and yes, a pope can lose the papacy. Um, I don't know that they've necessarily addressed the question of whether a man can become the Pope if he doesn't have the faith to begin with, though. Um, whether, that, whether he could ever be Pope under those circumstances. But they did address the question, uh, if, a, if a man were to be elected the Pope and then were to defect publicly from the faith, what would the consequences be? That's a very traditional question. A very traditional answer is that he would lose the papacy. So it's perfectly legitimate to, to raise that question and to say that there's an objective doubt about Francis's papacy. The consequence, the immediate consequence of that is the man is uh, spiritually and morally in trouble and we need to pray for his salvation, his conversion. But it also means that any authority that he attempts to wield is very doubtful and that we are not obliged to obey a doubtful authority like that. So he he, we're not being disobedient in, in rejecting what he's telling us. Quite the contrary. Uh, we're being obedient because the authority, or at least the voice that is speaking, is doubtfully, uh, is in doubt, you know, whether it is really the authority of the papacy speaking or not. Um, um, so any, anyway, um, you know, that's, that's as far as the regard we'd have for the authority of a doubtful pope. The expression that came from the uh, great Western schism of the 1300s was Papa Dubius, Papa Nullus. Uh, a doubtful pope is in, in effect really no pope at all because the doubtful pope uh, has a doubtful authority and one practically is not obliged in conscience to follow doubtful commands coming from doubtful authority. Okay. So uh, that's as, probably as much as I can or should say about that. Sure, mm -hmm. okay. Well, then following up on that, Father, um, how can the Society of St. Pius X possibly recognize Francis as a true pope? Um, this other emailer mentions the things that you just said about uh, the possibility of him excommunicating himself by all, all of these um, non-Catholic, anti-Catholic uh, things that he has done and said. So. Um, considering all of this, how can the Society of St. Pius X possibly still cling to this position that he is definitely the Pope? Well, I, I guess they're... Uh, I'm trying... You want me to answer for them? I don't know that I can, really. Uh, when I uh, arrived at Econe, uh Switzerland, the, the Society of St. Pius X Seminary at that time, one of the first pieces of literature I, I read was in French, and it was, um, I think the, the English title was The Masterstroke of Satan, Obedience. Uh, 
And in that, uh, that was, I think, written by Archbishop Lefebvre in 1976, as I recall. And I recall reading in, in there that he, he asked the question, you know, they're posing what the question that others are posing. Some say that Paul VI is not the true pope, is not a true pope. And as I recall, Archbishop Lefebvre wrote, perhaps they are right. But only the church can determine that in the future. But he accepted it as a possibility, as I recall, in that Le coup de maître de Satan, l'obéissance. My accent is not good, but it makes sense out of it. Um, so, uh, and since then, I mean, it was actually during a meeting in uh, Oyster Bay in New York, Oyster Bay Cove, uh, we were sitting at the table with Monsieur Lefebvre and he said, and I, I won't say it in French because of my poor accent, but I can tell you exactly what it was literally in English. And Monsieur Lefebvre said, I will not say that he's not the Pope, but neither will I say that one can't say he's not the Pope. And I thought, well, that's pretty much where I stand too. <clears throat> um, I can't proclaim the fact that, you know, with any authority that he's not the Pope, because I don't have that authority. I mean, I have to make my own judgment in the matter, certainly. Um, but uh, I can't proclaim that because I don't have any authority to do so. So Monsieur Lefebvre, realizing that, said, I will not say that he's not the Pope. But neither will I say that one can't say he's not the Pope. So he wasn't denying that to others to make that decision, that judgment. Um, I understand after that, he, he saw certain theological problems arising from it. Um, and even in that um, last interview that we talked about in the last program, uh, he actually has one line where he referred in that interview to what he was saying to the traditional, to the sede vacantis. Uh, but he didn't say what he said. <laughs> Uh, it was interesting. He, he, he began and answered a question by remarking, and so, you know, so I've said things to the Sede Vicantis. And then, but then he went on uh, to address the question of those who wanted to, uh, let's say, align with Rome, the modernists in Rome. That was his real focus. So uh, I would have liked him to expatiate a little bit upon and elaborate on that first sentence, you know, what, what, what he would say about the state of Vicantis. But he didn't say anything about that. Um, but it's, there's no doubt that Archbishop Lefebvre did entertain that as a possibility. Uh, I think he saw certain theological problems with it. Um, but uh, I think that's all he saw, just theological problems. Um, but in, in any case, I, I don't know why the Society of St. Pius X continues to insist that Francis must be the Pope, and you can't even doubt it, no matter what he says or what he does. You just can't question that. Because traditionally, many great churchmen have raised the question about a Pope like Francis, um, saying things and doing things that are contrary to the faith. And uh, they raise the question, can a Pope do these things? And the answer was yes. Can What would happen? And the answer is he would lose the papacy by it. Um, and that's, I think, the, the more common opinion among the, the doctors and writers of the church. 
Um, why the Society of St. Pius X continues doggedly to insist that he must be the Pope and you can't even question it, I don't understand. I, I, I would guess that there are quite a few priests in the SSPX who actually privately do have doubts and questions. Some might even be convinced that he can't be the Pope, that Francis can't be the Pope, but they're not saying it, and they wouldn't be allowed to, right? They wouldn't be allowed to say it, because the thought police would catch them. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but I wouldn't be surprised that there are many priests in the society who have a tougher stance on this. But why the authorities in the Society of St. Pius X don't? I mean, are, are they just trying to um, entice as many people to follow the Society of St. Pius X as they can by reassuring them, you know, that we're still within the fold and we're still towing the line and, you know, we, um, they don't want to alarm them or uh, with the truth. I don't know. Perhaps they still have the idea that they're going to somehow uh, make things work out with the next Novus Ordo Pontiff. I, I don't know what their expectations are, are there. One thing's for sure, it doesn't seem to be working out with this one, <laughs> this Novus Ordo Pontiff. <clears throat> you know, Father Pagliarotti, again, in his, in his letter, and I don't want to, you know, overstress this, but his letter responding to Francis in motu proprio, uh, Lays, lays the, the story out that there are two churches here, right? The Church of Christ and the Church of the World, and the Novus Ordo is the Church of the World. But he, he, he will not get to the point where he says, well, Francis is the Supreme Pontiff of the Church of the World. Can he be at the same time the Vicar of Christ on Earth and the Supreme Pontiff of the Church of Christ? Can, can one and the same individual be the Supreme Pontiff of both when these our two churches mutually at odds with each other, right? Um, and can it be the same church? Can the Church of Christ and the Church of the World be the same church? Can it, they be the one true church um, with two different religions and two different faiths that are mutually opposed to each other? Well, that's ecumenism. That's the whole point. And this is a problem we keep bumping into. They keep talking as though there's this with this one church, including the Novus Ordo and the traditional. But it's one church. They keep pretending that. And it's one church with two different faiths and two different religions that are mutually opposed to each other. Now, only the modernists can admit that. Only the modernists think you can have multiple religions and multiple faiths within the same church. That's called ecumenism, right? But Catholics can never agree with that. Christ could never agree with that. Any more than Christ could teach two different faiths and, and give two different religions to practice. I mean, it, it is the, the, the first essential attribute of the Catholic Church is the unity. And it, her unity is a unity of faith, her unity of worship, and her unity of rule. And the ultimate foundation for the unity of rule is in Catholic tradition. That's the the ultimate, or what they call the remote rule, right? The practice of the faith, Catholic tradition. The individuals, the popes who come and go, are the proximate rule. But they are beholden to and subject to the ultimate, or the remote rule of faith, which is the work of the Holy Ghost and sacred, uh, sacred tradition. So, only a modernist can say, in one church, could you have not unity of faith, but two different faiths. Not unity of worship, 
unity of religion, but two different uh, religions with two different forms, modes of worship. Um, and two different rules, Catholic tradition and the rejection of Catholic tradition, the world itself, you know. Um, so even to suggest that, yes, these are two different faiths, two different religions, they're mutually opposed to each other, but they're all in the same church, and that's the true church of Christ. Well, it's not only blasphemy, but it's essentially heresy. I mean, it, it denies the very idea of the oneness of the church, their first essential attribute. So, uh, I, you know, I, I guess the Society of St. Pius X can't, hasn't figured that out yet. <laughs> that they're actually uh, endorsing the, the modernist idea of ecumenism and pretending uh, that you can have these two different religions and two different faiths in the same, in one of the same church, and it's the true church established by Jesus Christ. Hmm. It's impossible. Okay. All right. Uh, well, let's move on to another topic, Father. Um, nice email here from a, a viewer. She writes in and says that my niece is studying at Franciscan University. Her professor of theology indicated that Pentecost is not the birthday of the church, but rather when Christ told St. Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, that that is the birthday of the church. Is that correct, Father? No. Okay. No, it's not. It's absolutely... Not only is it not correct, it's patently false. I mean, it's almost embarrassingly false that the professor would say that. I mean, you look at... St. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, 17, 18, where our Lord says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I mean, first of all, our Lord puts it in the future, I will build my church, right? I will give thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Clearly, our Lord wasn't giving Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven at that moment. Clearly, our Lord wasn't building his church on Peter at that very moment, okay? He says, I will do this, okay? Why would our Lord make Peter the victor of Christ at that moment when our Lord was still there, very much alive, still teaching, and our Lord didn't need a vicar at that time? Um, and so uh, the idea that the church was born when our Lord made that promise to Peter uh, I will give you the keys and I will build my church is it's nonsense. What he's saying is nonsense. Okay. And it's embarrassing and nonsensical. <clears throat> it indicates a, a very profound ignorance and even ignorance of English, uh, the English language, I think, mm -hmm. or, you know, if I, he could even go check the Greek if he wanted to. Uh, and he would find the same thing even more, even more, uh, clearly, um, the, the Catholic Church traditionally has regarded Pentecost Sunday as the day the Church actually was born, although St. Augustine does refer to the time when the soldier's spear opened our Lord's side as our Lord hung in death upon the cross, and that the blood and water that gushed out of our Lord's open heart signified the birth of the Church in the sense that the blood signified the Holy Eucharist, uh, with the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and the blood symbolized the sacrament of baptism, the first sacrament, uh, which opens the, the gateway to it's the gate to all the other sacraments, right? And so Saint Augustine referred to that, and he even he even likened it to 
uh, Genesis, where God drew Eve, the bride of Adam, out of his side uh, as Adam slept. And so, uh, as the scripture says, that as God cast a deep sleep over Adam and took out of his side his bride Eve. So, God took the bride of Christ, uh, the church, out of our Lord's side as he slept on the cross, right, in death. It's very poetic, a very beautiful passage of St. Augustine. <laughs> but I'm sure that St. Augustine uh, would find no problem with referring to Pentecost Sunday as the actual birthday of the church. Um, but that's not the issue here. The issue is there, really, is when he says that the church was born when Christ made that promise to Simon Peter. Uh, and uh, that's not true. And I don't know anybody else who has suggested that is true. It's interesting to know what comes next, by the way, and I would suggest that both the writer and her professor read what comes next. In St. Matthew chapter 16, <clears throat> you know what comes next. All right? Our Lord begins after Peter says, Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And our Lord says that that is revelation from God the Father, who's made that known to you, Peter. Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Then our Lord begins to tell the apostles that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer. When our Lord tells them what he's going to suffer. And Peter is so, so distressed by what he's hearing that he takes our Lord aside and begins to argue and protest that what our Lord is saying cannot possibly be true. And he could never suffer and die as he says he will. And so Peter is actually... Uh, actually denying the, the impending uh, passion and death of Christ, the sacrificial death for which our Lord came to redeem us. Peter was actually protesting that that would never happen. No sinner had our Lord promised to give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's what Peter does. Incredible, right? And no sinner does Peter say that he's the Christ, the son of the, son of the living God, that he gets, in, he gets into an argument with him. You know, doesn't Peter have the sense to realize if, if this is the Christ, the Son of the living God, why are you arguing with him? Because you have your own ideas of how things can be and can't be. How pathetic. And yet, we're all like that, aren't we? Really. I mean, we, we do that every day. We, it's as though we, we argue with God about how things are supposed to be and what they shouldn't be. But anyway, um, so we, we can't uh, uh, point fingers at, at Peter. We just have to uh, recognize ourselves there and ask God to have mercy on Peter and us. Well, he, Peter doesn't need the mercy now because he's in heaven, but thank goodness God did have mercy on him. <clears throat> in any case, um, and Peter and our Lord said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for you mind the things of you are a scandal to me, our Lord said. Imagine being so. Imagine scandalizing the Christ, the Son of the living God. Imagine scandalizing God. Right? Inconceivable. But that's what our Lord said to Peter. Thou art a scandal to me. Uh, for thou mindest the things of God, not the, uh, thou, mindest, thou mindest the things of man and not the things of God. And that was the problem of Peter all along. Right? <clears throat> so, um, I'm afraid that's the problem we still all have to face, even in being traditional Catholics. We've got to mind the things of God. 
not allow our th ourselves to be sucked up with the preconceived and very egocentric notions of man and what concerns man. So, okay. anyway, um, I guess that answers the question. <laughs> the answer is, well, I should have left it. No. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. okay. Uh, well, perhaps this is going to be the last email, Father. Um, this is from a viewer who's, who's newer to, uh, to Catholic tradition. And uh, he has a series of questions here, so maybe we can just get through some of these uh, quickly. His uh, first one, Father, does the Society of St. Pius V claim apostolic succession? Well, yes. We, I mean, there are true bishops, and they have the faith, right? Mm -hmm. And they were consecrated by true Catholic bishops um, uh, for the sake of transmitting the faith. And so they were, honest to goodness, Roman Catholic priests with the true faith and practicing the true religion. And uh, for that reason, they were selected um, and, um, and consecrated. So, All right. Yes. Great. Then his next question is, uh, this is the post-Vatican II church, the ape of the church or the anti-church as prophesied by saints? Yes, but the Novus Ordo? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. It is the, the anti-church, as modernism is the anti-faith, right? The synthesis of all heresies, mm -hmm. as St. Pius X said. Okay. So modernism is, is the anti-faith, and, and the Novus Ordo is the practice of the anti-faith. It's a practice of modernism. Okay. Yes, Father, could you provide some clear-cut prophecies that have been fulfilled, demonstrating that the time of the anti-church and anti-Christ could be at hand? Well, I think there are a lot of prophecies about that. I think we've talked about some of them, right? Um, I mean, there's been much said about Our, Our Lady of Good Success in Quito, Ecuador, right? I mean, that's very, very clear. But there are quite a number of other uh, prophecies. I think, um, again, Yves Dupont wrote uh, Catholic Prophecy, and there's a lot there about it. Um, and... Um, the uh, prophecies of, uh, help me out here, Tom, is it um, Bartholomew Holtz? Holtz mm -hmm. Holtz yeah. Yes, one of our fine men has brought those to light. Uh, so these are private revelations, but the, the interesting thing is that there's a, an enormous number of them over the centuries pointing at this century as being a century of, of spiritual disaster. And the church undergoing, as it were, the passion of Christ uh, in betrayals against her by her leaders, right? And um, and so on. So, uh, you know, there, there are a host of these prophecies, and uh, it might not be a bad idea for us to try to gather them together, but in fact, they are there, and you can look them up. <laughs> I would suggest to our questioner here, looking more deeply into uh, Mother Mariana and the uh, revelations, the private revelations of Our Lady of Good Success. Mm -hmm. um, again, the Golden Arrow, uh, Sister Mary of St. Peter, is very interesting, right? And uh, well, there are quite a few others. That you could, one would lead to the other. I think you'd find uh, that they all uh, harmonize, too, that, that they're all very much in agreement. Okay. Right. Um, then he asked, Father, he says, uh, considering that in the time of St. Catherine of Siena, different saints recognized different popes, but still managed to become saints, 
Could one still become a saint if he confesses allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church as identified by the Novus Ordo? Well, the difference between uh, what was happening during the Great Western Schism and even saints uh, disagreeing as to who was the legitimate pontiff, they were all believing the same faith and they were all practicing the same religion. But the, the faith of the religion, which is the Novus Ordo, is modernism. Modernism has spawned the Novus Ordo, the new order in religion. Right? And St. Pius X calls modernism the synthesis of all heresies. So that puts this in a, in a, in a category all by itself, a totally different situation than what was taking place in the 1300s when it was a, a juridical question about who was really the Supreme Pontiff. I mean, even the men who had, were claimants to the pontifical throne all practiced the same faith and believe, they, they followed the same faith, they believed the same faith, and they practiced the same religion. <coughs> but with the Novus Ordo, the new order now, we have a disintegration here. And that disintegration uh, is basically following death, and it involves the death of the faith. And that's what modernism does. Modernism destroys faith. Um, it is, first of all, a compromise with the errors of the world, and that compromise brings death to faith. So, um, no, it's, it's one, the question is, can one be sincere in following the Novus Ordo? Yes, and I say that because... Hardly a day goes by that somebody doesn't come to us and say, Oh, thank goodness, I thank God that I found my way back to the traditional faith. I was following the Novus Ordo because I thought it was the right thing to do in conscience. I thought I had to, uh, for whatever reason, I thought it was, I was required to do this as a, to be a Catholic. Now I realize it's not true, but at the time I believed it was. I didn't like it, I didn't want it, I suffered terribly through it. But I held on just because I, I mistakenly believed it was Catholicism and it was the right thing to do. Now I know it wasn't. But at the time they did. So could one actually think like that? Well, we have the examples of hundreds of traditional Catholics today who actually went through that. <coughs> they were trying to find their way. And because of their, um, of their uh, honesty and integrity of soul, in trying to do what they believe was the right thing to do, God led them to the truth. He led them back to the traditional faith and the traditional religion. So I, I guess it is it is possible to do that, but um, that doesn't change the fact that the Novus Ordo is not Catholicism. Uh, it's meant to be a substitute for Catholicism, and modernism is not the Catholic faith. It's meant to be a substitute for the Catholic faith. In fact, it is the anti-Catholic faith. Okay. Father, anything you know, else you'd like to get into tonight? You know, Tom, there is one thing. I'm always glad you asked the question here. But, and uh, I, I'll try to be brief about this. But, you know, there's a lot of talk about the elite. In fact, in the last show, I think it came up. Um, and somebody was talking recently about the, the three-day birthday party that uh, Barack Obama through for his 60th birthday, and uh, 450 at least uh, guests were there, right? 
the so-called elite of the entertainment business and all the rest, right? <laughs> Movers and shakers in our society and so on. The people who Obama, uh, what shall I say, respects and uh, admires and his friendship he values and people like him, okay? People who think like he does, who live like he does, or at least like he wants to. Um, you know, what does what does it mean, the elite? We hear this, the elite, the elite, the elite, and I, I was never really comfortable with that. I know what they're getting at. They're getting at those who are so rich and so famous, as though they're a different species. They, they, they live apart from the rest of us. They can make rules for the rest of us, but they're exempt from their own rules. They're above the law. They're above the laws that they themselves make for us. And that was definitely true in the case of Obama's birthday party, where there were no masks. There was no social distancing, even though now the alarm is going out about this Delta variant. Um, even at the height of that, all the warnings about the Delta variant and all the propaganda, you know, about the, you know, the lethality of it all and so on. Uh, at, at the... Uh, at the birthday fest for Obama, there were no masks, no social distancing, and there were people there who were not vaccinated. Um, so what what gives here? Well, there are those who say, well, they're the elite. They, they're not required to follow these things, you know. And there are people who think that's great, and they admire them and say, oh, I wish I could be one of those elite. I think that's, you know, they're they're like my heroes, you know. Uh, but there are many, many more who say, well, who do they think they are? You know, that they can make all these rules for us and then have to follow it themselves. Well, I think there's actually an answer to this. And I think we, when we talk about the elite, we actually have to see them <clears throat> by another title. Uh, you see, there's a philosophy out there um, that is very, very uh, rife today. It is uh, the philosophy of uh, Friedrich uh, Wilhelm Nietzsche. Uh, and Nietzsche, you know, uh, died at the year 1900, right? He was born in, I think, 1844. Died in 1900. And he's known as the philosopher of nihilism and so on. Although he was actually warning about nihilism. <clears throat> he's the one who actually, he didn't, you see, he didn't really invent these ideas, but he's the one who made them famous. Uh, the idea of the death of God, because Christianity, he said, had run its course, served its purpose, and now mankind was leaving behind the idea of heaven, God, Catholicism, especially the morality of Catholicism, he was saying. So, in other words, he was saying that God is dead, and uh, we have killed him, we have to bury him and move on, but he said... If we're going to do that, and uh, that was the foundation of our old morality, what would be the foundation of a new morality? He said the alternative would be uh, to saying, well, that this is true, there's a God in heaven, and this is his creation, we are his creatures, with his image and likeness, and the commandments, and so on. The, I, the problem, he says, with denying all of that is that the human rights might get to the point where they say nothing is true. Nihilism, he said. They would abandon the idea of 
truth itself. But nothing is true. There is no truth. He said that would not be good. So Nietzsche was not actually in favor of nihilism, but he was, he was proposing a way to avoid it. <laughs> he said, God is dead. That's finished. Okay, over and done with it. All the foundation of the old morality is gone. Good riddance to it, as far as he's concerned. And what he was proposing was now the rise of the, of the Ubermensch. Uber, Uber means above, uh, sometimes sup, super, superior, and Mensch in Greek, in, in uh, German, is uh, a human being, okay? It's translated as man, like Ubermensch, some translated as Superman or the Overman. I think um, a better way to express it really literally would be the superior human. That this is what he is proposing. The superior human has to come out of this. We have to transvalue our values and switch to new values. And um, he's, he was basically saying that what has to come out of this, God is dead, and moving on, <clears throat> is that there have to develop the superior human being. Now, he indicated that the superior human being that he described, especially in Also Sprach Zarathustra, then thus spoke Zarathustra, right? That was his major work in which he presented this idea as the wise man Zarathustra, Zarathustra explaining this idea of the rise of this superior human being um, who would be godlike. And uh, in fact, Nietzsche even said, you know, God is dead, we mourn, but the only way we can justify killing God is now that we become God. And we have to take his place. And we need the supermensch, the, the superior mensch or uh, human now to arise. But the superior human doesn't exist yet. It's a work in progress. Generations upon generations, they have to form this superior human being who's like the over uh, or uber uber human being uh it's a concept for which there is no clear term you know even the philosophers disagree even how to translate the concept of what he's trying to convey you'd, you'd almost have to read uh also sprach zarathustra to, uh, to to just read the description of him you know, when you, when you see what's going on today with these billionaires now <clears throat> uh, gathering together to kind of remake the human race, and we talk about transhumanism and uh, metahumanism and posthumanism. You can't help but see the hand of Nietzsche's thought behind all of this with this Ivamensch, the superior human that we now must somehow create after having killed <clears throat> the idea of a, of a transcendent God and realize there is nothing but this world. In fact, Nietzsche had based two, basically, two basic ideas that were extremely critical to his whole idea, if you can call it a system. I mean, he died out of his mind, right? 55 years old. Um, he became basically ward of, of relatives. He died in the care of his sister, even. 
who then took his philosophy and presented it to Hitler <laughs> uh, as a perfect um, platform for Hitler's um, uh, Aryan, Aryan race of supermen, right? Of superior men, right? Uh, there are indications that Nietzsche would never have wanted that, but that's what his sister did because she married a, uh, a Nazi, basically. <laughs> Um, but the idea that, um, I understand that she actually introduced her brother's, uh, uh, Nietzsche's thought to Hitler in such a way that it would be very favorable and useful to Hitler's, uh, own approach to things. So, but there are indications that Nietzsche would never have supported that idea. Nonetheless, uh, that's what happens with these ideas. When you have a, a false idea that is very revolutionary, I mean, any and every scoundrel in the book can take it and use it then and build on it. And that's what Hitler did here. But one idea that Nietzsche had was the idea that now taking the place of God in the world has to be this, uh, this superior human that we have to kind of breed almost. And another idea that he, that he had to do was the fact, well, the idea that since everything in the world is nothing but uh, material and, and matter is constantly c combining and recombining and decomposing and so on, that in the course of eons of time, everything will be back exactly, every molecule, every atom, everything will be back where it was before. And so we will be going through this entire enormously long, eons-long cycle until we actually return to exactly this moment which will be repeated endlessly throughout the ages, through endless time, that we will be sitting here again, exactly as we are reliving this moment by moment, because all matter, and that's all we are, will come back to exactly the same. Now, you can imagine how long it would take for all the atoms in the universe to find their way back to exactly and every all the molecules. So we're exact here, having the same conversation eons from now. But this law of this return and this repetition going on and on and on. August Comte, actually, the positivist, was already kicking this idea around, you know, uh, before Nietzsche. Um, so these are two basic ideas that Nietzsche had. You can see why these ideas would drive someone mad. Um, but in any case, um, when I when I reflect upon this idea of the superior human that he not only forecasts, but which he says, we, we must breed him, okay? We must somehow become him. I can't help but relate that to the idea of the so-called elite, elite today, especially the billionaires now, who think they're going to actually breed this. They're going to breed this superior man. And who's that going to be? Antichrist. The Antichrist, right? And will the Antichrist rule by terrorizing the world? I fear not. I fear not. Because there's something worse than that. I mean, he will terrorize all those who are faithful to God. But the rest of the world will follow him because they admire him. Because he's so... He's the Ulamich. He's the superior man. They will admire him.
That's scary, I think, really. So this, this process of creating the superior man, I think, is going on in the minds of these billionaires and their minions and politics and medicine right now. Uh, and I think we're the, uh, we're, in, we're in the laboratory. We are the, uh, what should I say? Uh, we're the control group, <laughs> whatever. Uh, they're going to be uh, experimenting on us. It just seems to me, so when we use the word elite, I think we have to put it in a certain context of the deeper thought. These are not just people who are like the nomenclatura of uh, Russia, who are living the high life while everybody else just has to muddle through in communism. Uh, no, I think it goes beyond that now. I think these are ideologues who have the idea they're going, they're on a mission. They're on a mission right now, and I really fear that the mission they're on is precisely, if you listen to the people, this is the talk, that they're on a mission to realize Nietzsche's dream of this übermensch, the superior human. Uh, whether they want to call the process uh, and its result transhumanism, or they want to call it uh, post-humanism, whatever else, I think that's exactly what's going on with them. So, uh, in any case, um, well, just a thought, right? Yeah. What's the answer? Faithfulness to Christ. We've got to be faithful to our Lord. Practice our traditional Catholic faith. Absolutely. But we've got to offer to God reparation for sin. We absolutely have to offer to God reparation for sin. That, that should be our, our thought every day of our lives. In everything we do, with every cross we have to carry, to offer God reparation for the sins of blasphemy, for the sins of profanation of the holy days, and everything else. Uh, that mankind is hurled in the face of God in contempt of him. We have to be here out of love for our Lord, making reparation to him. Um, if, if, in fact, um, the revelations given to Sister Mary of St. Peter are accurate, and communism is actually a scourge of God sent as a result of our sins to punish us, well, then the solution is exactly... Uh, if, if the problem is exactly what Our Lady warned us about at Fatima, that Russia would spend her heirs out the world, the solution is exactly what Our Lady told us we need to do, and that is make reparation. So let's be busy doing that. That's where the traditional Catholic mind and heart is right now. Out of love for our Lord to seek to make reparation to his sacred heart. And the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Absolutely. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time and everything that you do. Well, thank you, Tom. That's mutual. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.